Mark chapter 9. Father, this morning as we come into your house, we open up the word, we ask that you would do a deep and rich work in us. God, we ask for a work in our hearts that is nothing less than profound. We confess that we are often a lazy people, a complacent people, and a people that sometimes don't want to deal with the reality of the issues in our heart that are contrary to your will for us. And so we just ask now that we would surrender that aspect of ourselves, that we would fully open our hearts and our minds and our spirits unto you, and we say, Holy God, come and do a work in us. Speak to us in your word. We believe that your word are words of life, and in your word we find refreshing and we find you and your precepts. And so meet us here. Instruct us. God, I give you my heart, my mind, and my mouth. And I ask that you would teach us for your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week in Mark chapter 9, we saw that Jesus instructed the boys on the concept of servanthood. You remember from verse 35 that Jesus said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That instruction by Jesus was prompted by the disciples arguing amongst themselves as to who among them was the greatest. Jesus told them that he was going to the cross. Immediately they know that there will uh, come the need for another leader and so they start to argue and bicker. Which one of us is the greatest? And we learned last week that this happened repeatedly amongst the disciples. And so repeatedly Jesus taught them the lesson that the first shall be last. He among you who wishes to be great shall make himself the servant of all. The lesson of servanthood. And if you're anything like me, this week has been a tremendous, wonderful challenge as God has been working the word through your life. You understand what I'm saying? You don't want to just come to church and hear a sermon and do nothing about it. Billy Graham said the biggest sin in America is listening to sermons. You get my drift? And so we've got to be doers of the word. We've got to respond. And so this week I've been seeking to respond to the word of God and being a servant unto others. And there's been victories and there's been, you know, other stuff. But God is always wanting to work in us a response to the word. Last week it was servanthood. And today it is so profound and so important as Jesus brings up the concepts of unity and purity. Unity and purity. Last week, he illustrated the idea of serving one another by picking up a, children, a child, we see in verse 36, and he took him into his arms. And he said in verse 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. But whoever receives me does not receive me alone, but the Father. And so he held this child who was a picture to them of the least in society, the weakest, you know what I mean, the smallest And he said, this is the type of person that you are to serve. If you're going to make yourself least, you've got to be able to receive and serve one such as this. And when Jesus illustrated this idea of servanthood through the child, it prompted something in the disciple John. John remembered an interaction that he had had recently with a man who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but he wasn't one of the official disciples. And John had had an interaction with him along with the other disciples and his memory is jogged by Jesus saying, you've got to consider even the children. And so John says in verse 38, John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to hinder him because he did not follow us. 
Now, what was John doing? Why did the disciples try to hinder this guy? And why did John bring it up at this juncture? Perhaps he's feeling a little guilty about the interaction. Perhaps as Jesus is talking about servanthood and considering others to be more important and receiving even a child, perhaps he's beginning to think, man, maybe we should have esteemed this guy who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus and who was successful at it. Maybe we should have considered him instead of just blowing him off. And so maybe John is feeling a little guilty at this juncture and he's wondering. And so he confesses to the Lord. Or maybe there's another motive for bringing it up. Maybe John is wanting to demonstrate his zeal before Jesus. Jesus mentioned, uh, if you receive a child like this in my name, you receive me and subsequently the Father. And John immediately says, hey, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but we forbid him, we hindered him. So maybe John is saying, Jesus, your name, come on, we're zealous for your name. We're the disciples, we have care for your name. We don't know exactly why John brings it up at this point in the text, but we know this, that when he brings this up, it reveals in the disciples another sinful aspect of human nature. The last time they are arguing among themselves, who is going to be the greatest, who's going to be the next leader, and Jesus said, hey man, you got to make yourself the least. And now we see, as they forbid this guy because he wasn't one of them, We see being revealed in the disciples an attitude of exclusivism, elitism, factionalism, divisiveness. Hey, he's not one of us, so we told him to get lost. In verse 39, Jesus responds, But Jesus said, Don't hinder him, for there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you even a cup of water to drink because of my name or because you're followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. And so the Lord said, listen, you blew it there. There is within man this tendency, this sinful tendency to err on one side or the other as it comes to our perception of others. Either we think we're better than them there is this elitism, this exclusivity of, hey, you know what, Every, everyone else is doing it wrong, but we're doing it right. We see that in the church all the time. Or there is the other side of the spectrum where there's this intense jealousy. Man, I want what they have. Maybe that's what was going on in the heart of John, because remember the disciples earlier in chapter 9, they weren't able to cast the demon out of the boy. And yet this guy was successful at doing what they were failing to do. Maybe they were jealous of this man maybe it was more this sense of exclusivity of hey we are the official 12 disciples man don't mess with our gig you're not one of us either way there seems to be in man this tendency and we see it in the bible from the beginning to the end do you remember in numbers moses had brought the children of israel out of egypt and he's leading them through the wilderness toward the promised land and the demands on moses became too great God had anointed him as a leader. God had put his spirit in him. And yet Jethro, his father-in-law, came to him and said, Listen, Mo, you're doing too much work, man. You need some help. You need some others around you. And so God said, Raise up from among the men of Israel 70 elders who will help you lead, and I will put my spirit upon them, the Lord said. And so Moses and the others, they chose these 70 elders, and God put his spirit upon the elders, and when God's spirit came upon them, they began to prophesy. 
Now everybody in Israel started to trip out at this point. Because nobody was prophesying except for Mo at the time. Mo was the one who had the Spirit of God upon him. He was the one who was anointed to lead. But now there's these 70 others beginning to prophesy. And Joshua, good old Joshua, Mo's little buddy, his assistant. Joshua comes to Moses and he says in Numbers eleven twenty eight, 28, Hey Mo, there's these guys Eldad and Medad. And they're back there in the camp of Israel. And they're prophesying in the name of God by the Spirit of God. And Moses says, Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Joshua, don't be jealous for my sake. I wish that God would put His Spirit upon all His people. That all of His people would prophesy and lead. Now there was in that a prophecy of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given to the church. But we also see there illustrated again in Joshua this idea of exclusivity. We see it again in John the Baptist in his ministry. John the Baptist, before the coming of Jesus, he was the man, you understand. Everybody was going out to John the Baptist to meet him in the Jordan. They were repenting. They were being baptized by John the Baptist. He was getting a lot of attention. He was doing a lot of ministry. But he said, there's one coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, speaking of Jesus. When Jesus came, he began to gather disciples unto himself, and he too began to baptize in the Jordan. And John's disciples, John the Baptist, came to him in John chapter 3 and said, John, this guy that you were talking about, this Jesus guy, he's baptizing over there on the other side of the river, and everybody is coming to him. John, you're losing disciples to this Jesus guy. Everybody's giving him attention now. What are we going to do? We used to be the main gig in town. And John says, listen, John 3.30, I've got to decrease that he might increase. We see the right attitude in John the Baptist and in Moses, but we see the wrong attitude in the people who were gathered around them. That there was a divisiveness and an exclusivity. Within the church, we have, within the evangelical church in America, we have many denominations. And there's nothing wrong with denominations. They're not contrary to the plan of God. They're not against the will of God. They're not evil by nature. There is nothing wrong with denominations. The only thing that is wrong with denominations are the people in them. You and I understand. People who have this mindset of, hey, we we do it just a little bit better than them. They might not say it in the open. But would you be honest and confess today that with whatever group you're associated with, there's often this air of, we got to figure it out, and they don't, they're not quite there. Pray for them. We see it manifest in humanity. We see it in the Bible from beginning to end. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and let's see what Paul has to say. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is very clear here that we who are in the church are going to have to be diligent, forthright, mindful of trying to preserve unity in the church for two reasons. Our own sinful nature, our own flesh that has these tendencies in it of divisiveness and arrogance and jealousy and the enemy. The enemy always wants the church to be divided. As long as the enemy can keep the church backbiting and fighting against one another, he doesn't have to do much more. But when the church gets united, as Jesus prayed for, as we'll see in a minute, when the church comes together for a common purpose and the common goal, as the early church was, then the world is transformed. Listen. The early church was very small compared to the church today, but they were tremendously impactful, and we're told in the book of Acts that they were continually gathered together, and they had one mind and one accord and one purpose. They were devoted to each other, the breaking of bread together, and the apostles' teaching. They weren't worried about all the superfluous stuff, all the other things. Now, we've got to be united in purpose and in mind and in heart and in spirit with other churches who fall within the pale of orthodox historical Christianity. That is to say, they cling to the basic tenets of the faith as taught in the Bible. That God is one and yet He is manifest in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That God draped Himself in humanity in His Son, Jesus Christ. In the virgin birth, in the death upon the cross as being the only way to have our sins atoned for. In the physical and literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that he is the only way to salvation. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we can be saved. And as long as a group is holding to those basics of the Christian faith, then we should be partnered with them in heart and in spirit and in practicality, laboring together for the cause of the gospel, laboring to see our families restored, our families rebuilt, marriages saved, children saved, our coastline impacted. It's always easier said than done. But we're going to have to fight for that. We're going to have to labor for that. Every week of my life, the enemy comes against me personally in this church against that. Being unified with other churches, it's very difficult. Now, if somebody falls outside the realm of historical, orthodox, biblical Christianity, then we have no obligation to be united with them, no obligation to partner with them whatsoever. If they deny the deity of Jesus Christ, see you later, heretic. If they deny the physical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, goodbye. We have no obligation to partner with them. We can be their friends. We can share them with them the true word of God. But we have no obligation to be partnered with them in the cause of the gospel because their gospel is a false one. That's why it's so important that we cling to the Bible as our plumb line. Otherwise, we have no standard by which we live and function as a church. No standard whatsoever. That's why it's so important that we study the Word of God. So that's within different churches. Denominations are okay as long as we realize that we are one church with one head, Christ Jesus. Amen? Now, but within the smaller church context, such as just this church here, Reality Carpinteria, even in our midst, we've got to be fighting to preserve unity because we will have different uh, dispositions. We will have different giftings. We will have different callings. 
we will have some minor doctrinal differences and secondary issues. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we see Paul address this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are called to function together as a body, the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. We're going to read 27 verses now in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Pay attention, huh? This is not junior high ministry. We're all good. We can pay attention now. We're only a few minutes into the sermon. Be with me. We're going to read. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul there sort of piggybacking on that idea that Jesus put forward in our text in Mark chapter 9, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also in Christ." For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary... It is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another and if one member suffers all the members suffer with it if one member is honored all the members rejoice with it now you are christ's body and individually members of it it's very clear from the new testament 
that we are called within the immediate church context to function differently. But we are to function for the common good. Do you have a gift that God has given you? Yes, you do. If you're a Christian, we all have spiritual gifts as Christians. You are to bring it into the body for use for the common good. Each have a, has a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another, 1 Peter 4.10. We're supposed to bring everything that we have to the table, so to speak, and say, okay, God, build us up as a body. Build us up as a church through these gifts. But immediately, because we're sinful, we begin to compare gifts. Oh, he's got the gift of so-and-so. Oh, wonderful. Oh, he's got that gift. The Bible says here, don't do that. The Bible says we should have the same consideration for one another, the same care for one another, that the people that come in and they just, they move chairs and that's their gift, the gift of help and they do different things around the building, that they shouldn't look at the people who are in the back room praying and say, why don't they come out and move some chairs? Always praying. And the people who are always praying shouldn't be looking and saying, how come they're never praying? They're just carrying around these chairs all the time. We're better. No, we're better. No, they're so spiritual, we're jealous. Oh, they get to do so much hands-on stuff. We're jealous. You see how sick we are? That's what the body of Christ looks like, and yet the body ought to be unified, saying, okay, where's the eye? We, we, need, we need two eyes. Okay, we need the ears. Who's, who's the ears? Who's got the gift of discernment here? We need some ears. Okay, where are the hands? We need the gift of helps. Where are they? And we function together. And when the church begins to do that, the church is like the early church. It is impactful. It is powerful. It is profound, and it is relevant. When the church doesn't, it is old and it is dead and it is meaningless. And let's all go surfing. I'd rather not waste my time here with you all and vice versa. Jesus was so serious about this that he prayed in John chapter 17. I want you to turn there. John chapter 17. John 17, we have the high priestly prayer of Jesus the night before the cross, just before he's betrayed and arrested. And as you can tell from the context, it's just before he goes to the cross. He's praying here for the disciples and for you and I. Important moment in history. What he prayers has to be of the utmost profundity. This must be the foremost thing on the mind of Christ before the cross. This is what he prays to the Father just before he's betrayed. He says in John 17, 18, As thou didst send me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Speaking of his immediate disciples. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. In other words now, he's praying for the future generation of believers. He says, Father, I'm not only praying for my immediate disciples, but for those who will believe in me through their word and for their, through their ministry. That's you and I. Jesus is praying in this text for you and I, the future disciples, the church. And then he says, in verse 21, here's what, what he asks the Father. That they may all be one, even as thou, Father, are in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me, and the glory which thou hast given me I have given to them, 
that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou did love me. Jesus prayed that his church immediately then and in the future now would be united even as he and the Father are united, that we would be one. You understand if Jesus prayed this, that Satan hates this? You comprehend that? Is that clear? That's obvious, isn't it? If Jesus prayed this, if it is first and foremost, if it is paramount on the heart of God, then it is contrary to the work of the enemy. That's why we've got to battle for unity. I find myself battling for unity all the time. Number one, against my flesh. My flesh that wants to be jealous or elitist. My flesh that says, gosh, Lord, you're doing such a great work through them. I wish you'd do that through me. I'm jealous. Or that church has more of this or more of that or so on and so forth. Or I'm elitist. Oh, Lord, that poor church down the road. Oh, look what we're doing. And so I battle against my wicked sin nature continually with regards to that. And then the enemy. The enemy is like God in this sense. When the enemy works, he works through people, right? God works through people. The enemy works through people. And so it just starts with bickering. Just simple bickering, you know. Here in our immediate church context, brothers and sisters bickering against each other. Little divisions. They're like little walls being built. When I was doing the college ministry in Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, which I just retired from two weeks ago, so to speak, for seven years, every Friday night, I taught and pastored there. And one night I was teaching on this subject and the Lord gave me a vision of the congregation. And as I saw the congregation, there were stone walls weaving throughout the congregation, all through people, just separating people two and three and one and four and five at a time, walls. And over those walls was growing a thicket. And that thicket was then growing over the people and connecting itself. And the Lord began to break my heart because I saw even here in this, in, in, in our own congregation on Friday night, there was division. The person over here didn't like the person over here. Didn't agree with his theology. Didn't like who he was dating. Didn't like what he did with his Christian liberality. Didn't like his gig. Whatever it was. There was all this division. And God began to just, he just broke my heart over that. And I'm a victim of that and I'm as guilty of that as anybody else because I'm a man. But you understand we've got a battle. We can't give up. Because the moment we let ourselves be divided, we become irrelevant to the world. And the church is trying so hard to be relevant. If we have the right colored lights, you know, if we have the right music, if we uh, communicate in a certain way. I just met with some pastors this week. Uh, we were doing some stuff. And they said, well, the latest thing I've done is I got rid of my pulpit. And that makes me more relevant to the people because this generation doesn't like pulpits. And so now I don't preach with a pulpit. I just stand there with my stuff. Am I more relevant right now than I am right now? Here at my pulpit, here no pulpit. That doesn't make us relevant. (laughs) Jesus said that the world would know because we're united. That's what he prayed in John chapter 17. The world is not going to know by our lighting or our lack of a pulpit. The world is going to know because we are united, working together, one mind, one heart, one soul, one accord, laboring for the cause of the gospel, supporting each other, caring for one another. It's the hardest thing in the world. It is the hardest thing in the world. And we cannot stop battling until the rapture of the church. And then we retire. But until then, we've got to battle on this thing. 
And so unfortunately, the disciples were so much like you and I, they were bickering amongst one another and they were outcasting others. Hey, Jesus, that guy's not with us. And so we hindered his ministry. And let's see what the Lord teaches him next. Go back to Mark chapter 9. So their selfishness was revealed earlier in Mark chapter 9 as they were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And now their elitist attitude, that sinful attitude is revealed as they said to this guy, hey, he's doing legitimate ministry, it's in the name of Jesus, but we don't like him because he's not with us, so we told him to stop. And so now Jesus seen the selfish, elitist sinful attitude in his disciples begins to warn them about the destructive nature of sin and the consequences thereof. And so he says in verse 42 of Mark 9, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes to stumble, who is a little one? who believes. It's just a humble Christian. Maybe it's a brand new believer. They're a babe in Christ. They're just a child in God. Just a simple, humble, young Christian. And he's saying to his disciples, who because they've been with him for some time, ought to know better. Because they're called disciples. They've been trained by the master. If you cause one of these little ones, one of these humble ones who believes, a younger Christian to stumble because of your lack of holiness and impurity, because of the sloppiness in your walk, it would be better for you, Brit, if there were a large millstone tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Why are you not terrified? I am terrified by that statement. Because I know my own lack of holiness in areas. And the own sloppiness of my walk at times and how it can affect others around me. And I'm in far more danger than you because more people see me by nature of my job. God have mercy on me. God said in James chapter 3, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers because as such you will incur stricter judgment. God have mercy on me. But for you too, it would be better that you watch your walk and don't cause a younger Christian to stumble, stumble by the things you do. Otherwise, a large millstone around your neck. Here's a large millstone. Picture of one. A little out of focus, but you see that round stone up there? Uh, You don't have any way to gauge how big it is, but it's about this big. And in that culture, there were little millstones that the women would turn during the days. They'd ground their flour into wheat, and they'd be about this big. And they'd grind them around in the little bowl, you know, and just they grind it up. And then there were large millstones, like that one, that big round rock there, and only a donkey could turn that thing. And so they would put a pole through the middle of it, and it would hook to the middle of that trough-like thing, and the donkey would walk in circles, and he'd grind the wheat all day long. And we're told that in the first century from some of the historians, we know that the Romans at time would take one of those large millstones, tie a rope around it, and then the other end of the rope around a revoltist's neck and throw them in the sea. Jesus said, that's a better fate than a lack of holiness in your walk that causes others to stumble. Let's move on. And then he turns to them in their own walk. He says in verse 43, or how they relate with themselves, in verse 43, 
And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. Verse 44, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If you have the NIV, verse 44 is not there. If you have the New American Standard or the King James, Old or New King James, verse 44 is there and verse 46 is there. Some of the ancient manuscripts didn't have verse 44 and verse 46. And so the editors of the NIV chose to leave it out and it just mentions that in your margin. That's fine. It's no big deal because it's in all the Bibles in verse 48. So it doesn't matter which translation you have. The concept is there. Verse 45. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life, meaning eternal life, lame, than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Jesus here is impressing upon the disciples as they have revealed in their own hearts selfishness and elitism the seriousness of sin. He's saying to them, boys, if there's something that is causing you to sin, get rid of it. Now, he didn't mean literally to cut your hand off or your foot off or gouge your eye out. How do we know? Because in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, he says clearly that sin comes from the heart. Mark 7, 20 through 23, a good cross-reference for you here. He says clearly there that sin comes from the heart. The issue is not your hand. Jesus knows if you cut off your one hand, you still have the other to sin with, but it comes from the heart. God always looks upon the heart, and sin always originates in the heart. That's the gig. And some throughout history have taken this literally. There was a a great Scottish preacher, his name was A.J. Gossip, and he had some theological students, and he had a brilliant student, and one night he comes in the student's room, and the student had gone mad and cut his hand off, and he was yelling exultantly, now I'll get to see the Lord, now I can face Jesus, I've done what is right. Don't do that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Don't do that. The most famous example is from Origen of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers who had himself emasculated to try to suppress his lustful urges. Don't do that. The Bible doesn't teach that. It won't help your problem. Do you understand that? It won't help your problem. Mutilating your body will not help your problem. The scriptures never call us to physical mutilation. They call us to spiritual mortification. That is to say, getting rid of anything that causes us to sin. Taking drastic measures. The hand is a symbol of the things that we do. The foot reminds us of the places that we go. And the eye is what we see. And so if there are things that we do that cause us to move into an area of sin, don't do that. It's like you go to the doctor and you say, Doc, it hurts when I do this. And he says, well, don't do that. God, every time I do that, I sin. Don't do that. The feet, it's where you go. Is there an area in your life that you are frequenting that every time you're there, it is sinful for you? Jesus is simply saying, don't go. It's that simple, don't go. Cut it out. You see, sin is like a cancer. You've got to cut it out. It's going to cost you something. If you have cancer and you have to cut it out, it may cost you some other bodily functions. It may leave you scarred to a certain degree. But you don't let the cancer grow. You remove the cancer. 
And the Bible teaches that sin is like that. It's like leaven. And that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And so it's got to be removed. It's like cancer. It's got to be cut out. It's got to be removed. And so if God is speaking to you about an area of your life that has got to go, listen, it's got to go. Whether it's something you're doing or a place you're going or something that you're looking at, be willing to take drastic measures. Some of you, you've got to get rid of your computer or your internet. Either one, choose. Internet won't do you any good with a computer, so choose wisely. Some of you have got to cancel your subscription to cable and to the magazine. Some of us have to get rid of the TV altogether. It's just what we have to do. Some of you have a relationship that is sinful for you and you've got to break it off. It's causing you to sin. You're not walking in holiness. God doesn't want you in it and you know it and you've got to break it off. Others of us, it's a certain habit. You've got to put it down today. You've got to let it go. It's like a cancer. Listen, God loves you. God is calling you to holiness and to purity because he loves you. Not because he's mean. Not because he doesn't want you to have fun. Not because he's a killjoy. Because he knows the destructive nature of sin. That is why Jesus Christ bled upon the cross. That is why his body was broken and maimed because of the seriousness of sin. And it will destroy our lives. And so as our loving father, he's saying, son, don't do it. Daughter, don't do it. Just put it down. Just let it go. I am willing to satisfy you in a way that that could never satisfy you. If you give that up, you're asking me, what are you going to get? You're going to get a hundredfold. You're going to get me. God is willing to give himself to you when you let stuff go. But we've got to be willing to let it go. Maybe for you, it's just a memory. Good or bad in your mind, it's just a memory. and you've got, to, you've got to take it captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ and surrender it at the foot of the cross. Maybe for you it is some anger and some bitterness. And it just causes you to sin every time it comes up. Every time you see that person, you've got to surrender that today. Maybe it's a wound and someone did you horribly wrong and you refuse to let that go. You refuse to let God deal with it and heal it. And it's eating you up and it's cancer within your spirit. And you've got to surrender it to God today. It might be a sacrifice, you know. Wow, I've got to let that go? That's, it means something to me. Yeah, it might be a sacrifice. Welcome to Christianity. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow me, Jesus Christ said. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. (laughs) What does that mean? For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt in the Bible so often, and salt in that culture was a preservative. You understand that in that day they ate meat just like we eat meat, but they didn't have coolers and they didn't have refrigerators. And so if they wanted to preserve meat in that climate during the day, they would salt the meat. And salt was a preserving agent for the meat. Read it now. For everyone will be preserved with fire. What does that mean, fire? Fire in the Bible pictures for us two things, judgment and refinement. And they commingle together. But it is through the holy fire of God that God's people are refined. God is continually judging us not to punish us for sin, but for discipline. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
And we're told in the Bible, and we know from simple science, that gold is refined by fire. And silver is refined by fire. Refiner's fire. And God is calling us to be pure in His sight. And so He will allow us some fire in our lives. Holy fire that burns away the dross and the waste product. That purges the impurities out of us. For everyone will be preserved by the discipline of God. Might be a suitable paraphrase. How does God bring fire into our lives? Two ways. Decisions and suffering. You see, some of us, we need to make a decision and we're refusing to make it. And so God is just turning up the heat in our life. He's turning up the heat. You understand? He's sovereign. He's God. And uh, He loves you. You're His child. And for some reason, He doesn't open up the skies and with a big stick, slap us on the head. I wish He did for my benefit. For me, to slap me. I wish He would. But instead, He just gently turns up the heat. Things just get a little hotter. Gosh, it's uncomfortable. Lord, what's the situation? What am, I, what am I doing wrong here? And he turns up the heat a little bit more. Okay, Lord. Um, uh, okay, I'm getting the picture here. And it gets a little hotter. Okay, God, I give it up. I surrender. I want it out. I want this impurity gone. And the other way is through suffering. In the book of Acts... God told the church to go and make disciples of all the nations. And what did they do for eight chapters? They sat around in Jerusalem. They made disciples in Jerusalem, but they were called to go to Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth, and they didn't go anywhere. So what did God do? God allowed the church to be persecuted. He allowed the church to be suffering. And as soon as Christians began to get killed, Christians began to get active. And that is true for history from the first year of the church until this date. When Christians suffer, Christians get real. That's why we are at a disadvantage as American Christians and especially on this coastline. Because inherent in our culture and our lifestyle, there's just not a lot of suffering that there is in other places. And so there's not a lot of fervent Christianity in our nation. But God has his ways. He's sovereign. He knows how to turn up the heat. He knows how to discipline those whom he loves for our good, for our refining, for our chastening, that we might be preserved through his discipline. In verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. You remember that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said to the disciples, you are the salt of the earth. And it's explicit in the Greek that it meant you and you alone. You are the salt of the earth. You are to have in this world a preserving influence. That's what it means that we're the salt of the earth. Many aspects of salt, but that's one of them for you this morning. We are to have a preserving influence of this world, in this world. Who else is going to uphold morality and the standards of God if the church doesn't do it, if the individual Christian doesn't do it? Nobody will do it. Don't expect the schools to do it. It's not their job. It wasn't given to them by God. Don't expect the government to do it. It wasn't given to the government by God. It was given to the church and to individual Christians to uphold a standard of right in our communities. To be a preserving agent. That is why we're taught in the book of Thessalonians that the Antichrist cannot be revealed until the church is raptured. It says in the book of Thessalonians, and you know what restrains him. And that is the Holy Spirit working through the church because the church is a preserving agent in the world. And when the church is raptured out of the world, all hell breaks loose, so to speak. And so in our individual lives, salt is good. 
But if we lose that preservative quality, how can we be restored to saltiness? You can't. Once salt loses its salty qualities, it can't be restored again. Now, how does salt become unsalty, so to speak? How does it lose that, uh, that, that activeness of preserving? What is salt? What is its uh, scientific name? Sodium chloride. You never say that, huh? Hey, uh, sweetheart, pass the sodium chloride. And yet that's the real name for salt. Now, those of you who are educated, not me, you know, I just read it in a book somewhere, you know that sodium chloride is a stable chemical compound. That is to say, left on its own, salt, sodium chloride, does not lose its saltiness. Left to ourselves, we don't lose our saltiness as long as we're abiding in Christ. Sodium chloride, you can let it sit there forever. It doesn't lose its salty qualities. When does sodium chloride lose its saltiness? When it becomes contaminated with impurities. When it's mixed with some other impure chemical, then it's rendered useless as salt. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, all you can do then is throw it out on the ground for men to trample under their feet. It's useless. And we're told to maintain the saltiness in ourselves and we lose it when we don't pay attention to James chapter 1, verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, that you visit widows and orphans in their distress and that you keep yourself unstained from the world. Very succinctly in one verse, James described Christianity. This is pure and undefiled religion that you visit widows and orphans in their distress, that you are a servant and that you keep yourself unstained from the world, that you walk in holiness. There is Christianity, servanthood, and purity. And so we've got to keep ourselves from impurities, lest we lose our saltiness and we get shelved by God, or worse yet, thrown on the ground and trampled under the feet of men. You understand, it's very important for the kingdom of God and for your individual life that you maintain your saltiness, that you are preserved through allowing God to discipline you. And so this morning, if God is speaking to you like he's speaking to me to lay something down, please, in the name of Jesus, lay it down. Let it go. Don't hold on to it. Don't cling to it. It's killing you. It's destructive for you and your family and your loved ones. Let it go. Is it going to hurt a little bit? Sure. Is it going to cost a little bit? Yeah. But what you give up is nothing compared to what God will give in return with his presence. Peter told the nation of Israel in Acts 3.19, Turn from your sins and repent that times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. God, this morning, make us a people who are zealous to repent. Search our hearts, God, and see if there be any unjust or wicked way in us. Thank you that you search our hearts because you love us and you care and you just want to grow us. So now we ask as we lay our hearts before you in worship and in prayer, that you'd move us from selfishness to servanthood, from divisiveness to unity, from the lust of the flesh to purity. You know each individual heart. You know if you need to do some business, but right now we would corporately agree in prayer to press in and say, okay, God, what what, what do you want to do? What needs to be cut out of my life? What needs to be cut off? What do I need to let go? God, make us zealous for holiness. Make us a people who are united and are holy that we might be relevant and effective in this world. God, we don't want to do church. We don't want to play games. We don't want to come here and put on a show and leave and be unchanged. Lord, save us from that. 
but we want to be your people and we want you to do real business in us. So search our hearts. Call us to repentance and refreshment in the name of Jesus.